0: Okay, let's get settled in. Let's talk more about biblical economics. But before we do that, let's pray. Everybody in here? Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your many blessings and your goodness towards us. Father, I pray that as we learn more about uh, the economy and your world, or that we would be uh, better able to serve you by the information that we receive. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 So I saw a tweet the other day from a pastor that said this. If your church refuses to stand boldly for preborn human life, Christian sexual ethics, and biblical market economics on the ground that these are political issues, you'd better hope that the Trinity, biblical inspiration, and salvation by grace don't one day become politicized. So do y'all get that?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's a pretty good post, I think. And... uh the post didn't really surprise me, uh, based on who it came from, but what really surprised me about that post, uh, was the comments below the the tweet. Um, you know, one person said biblical economics with laughing emoji, (laughs) ha ha ha. Uh, you know, so apparently, I mean, there was a bunch of comments that said that biblical economics. Yeah, right. Bible didn't say anything about economics. And so, even, uh, I learned that even uh, comment thread I learned through this comment thread that even um, the mention of biblical economics go, going, it goes too far for many people and it's a good way to bring out the theological keyboard warriors out of the woodworks and they laughed at this idea of biblical market economics it was a joke to them and I think it would be a joke to many people uh, many Christians if you sent them this tweet but this fact that the very idea of biblical standards in the area of economics could so easily turn somewhat theologically literate young men into scoffers makes me think that we really have a big problem on our hands as Christians living in the modern age. Right? Is the idea that the Bible actually has something to say about economics really so crazy? No, it's not crazy. That's what y'all should be saying. No, not at all. It's so crazy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and a lot of people say, well, the Bible isn't a textbook on economics. Well, duh. The, the Bible's not a textbook on theology either, right? But that doesn't stop people from writing systematic theologies. In fact, the, the Bible speaks more about economics than it speaks about hell. So to say that the Bible doesn't deal with economic issues is false someone who says that the Bible doesn't speak on economics, they're going to have to talk to a certain man who spent 60 years of his life writing a 31-volume economic commentary of the Bible. So this guy wrote commentary on every passage in the Bible that deals with economic issues. Over 700 passages. So someone who says that the Bible doesn't say anything about economics, has a real problem when they look at these 31 books. 10,000 pages. They have a really big problem if they say that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about economics. They're going to have to prove that this guy wasted his whole life writing this commentary set. right? And so they're going to have to figure out what to do with that. But more often than not, the people who reject the idea of biblical economics, they seek to promote some kind of socialism instead. Uh, this shouldn't be at all surprising, considering our current generations drift in this direction. So for a Christian attracted to socialism, the idea that the Bible is indifferent on these matters is an attractive option, wouldn't you think? For a Christian who wants to, who is attracted to socialistic economic theory, Marxist economic theory, it would be very convenient to believe that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about economics. Right? After all, they say, where does the Bible condemn socialism? Well, that's actually a really easy question to answer. Thou shalt not steal. Done. So if someone came up to me and said, well, uh, where does the Bible say that you can't go to an orgy? You shall not commit adultery. Huh? Multiple people having sex with each other at the same time. It's a common thing. You asked, I'm telling you yes it's a common thing pagans did this sorts of things all the time uh but so you know people say well where does the bible say you can't do that well does it say thou shalt not have orgies no but it does say thou shalt not commit adultery right that implies that you shouldn't be doing that right yes
1: there's a there's a thing in ephesians where it's like don't do all these wicked things and list
0: orgies. Oh, that's true. Okay, well, I, I stand corrected. But even if that passage didn't exist, we could infer that you shall not do these things based on the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't commit adultery, right? So it's the same thing with socialism. See, socialism is basically theft by majority vote, right? The Bible doesn't say thou shall not steal except by majority vote. The Bible says thou shalt not steal, period. So just as the prohibition of adultery presupposes the institution of marriage, one man, one woman, the prohibition of adultery doesn't make any sense without the institution of marriage. And the prohibition of theft also doesn't make any sense without the institution of private property, right? What do the socialists believe about private property? There is no private property. So why would the term thou shalt not steal, how could that make any sense in a world without private property? There would be nothing to steal, right? So when God tells us not to steal, that tells us that property rights are fundamental for God's order for humanity. And I would go further and say that without property rights, you don't have human rights at all. So, biblical economics is what we call today free market economics or economic liberty. Uh, capitalism, that was probably a term invented by Karl Marx, which is why I really don't like using the term all that much, uh, because it was a term of derision. It was a, it was, it, it was a term of uh, deriding something. It was a bad word. Like we would use the term racist. You know, when we say someone is a racist, we don't usually, we're not usually complimenting them, right? No, it's the same thing with capitalism. Karl Marx did not issue out, uh, you, you're such a great capitalist. He never did that. That was always a term of derision. And so uh, Marx used that word capitalism. But I like free market economics, biblical economics. And so we have to base our ideas about the free market and economic liberty on the Bible, not on some uh, fantasy by some crazy man living in the 19th century. And when we do that, when we base our ideas about economics on the Bible, we come up with the importance of the centrality of human exchange in property, what we call private property and private ownership of property. Okay, And, and the fact that we can do with it what we will with our stuff, our property, as long as it's in accordance with the law of God. That's a good thing. We can do what we want with our stuff. That's a God-given right to us, as long as it's in accord with the law of God. And so it's also true that there is no capitalism set forth in the Bible, as Karl Marx describes it. But what we today call economic liberty and free exchange often identify with capitalism. That is found in the Bible, okay? So let's talk about wealth for a moment. Wealth. How is wealth created? What do you think? Through work? Okay. What is wealth? A-R-P. Um, huh?
1: Material possessions.
0: Material possessions, okay.
1: Currency. Um,
0: Currency? Yeah. Okay. What is wealth, and how is it created? Anything. Addie, go ahead. Uh, anything that you have a lot of, like you need, you need wisdom, or anything okay. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, Jackson. I was say what she said. Same thing. Okay. Good. So yeah, I mean, uh, wealth is um, basically all of those things, uh, and how is wealth created? Somebody said through work. AARP.
1: AARP. It's a um, welfare. Company. It's a welfare company.
0: Nope, not through AARP. Unless you're stealing from others, I guess. I don't know much about them. Maybe everybody pays into it. Is it like is that like a uh, like a retirement age sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. Okay. What else? You could be given wealth. Yeah. Uh, printers. Huh? Printers. Printers. No, not printers. <laughs> print wealth. just print wealth. Print print dollar bills. You
1: can see my money printer. It just makes
0: wealth. Just makes wealth for you. Yeah. So no, that's not a legitimate way that wealth is made. But wealth is created constantly. And the only way that you can create wealth is through all of you giving away your private property to the central government and having them manage it all for you, right? Yeah, Great idea. Right, great idea. No, that's not how you create wealth. The only way that you can create wealth is through free exchange, through free and uh, voluntary exchange of goods and services. You don't dig wealth out of the ground. Uh, Wealth isn't in the ground. Wealth is in your mind. Wealth is in your head. you know, For example, let's say I was selling cars. Let's say I'm a car salesman. I would be a very bad car salesman, by the way, but just you know, go with me on this. And you need a car, okay? And so let's say you need to get to your job every day. You need to get to school. You need to maybe, you know if you're an adult, drop off and pick up your kids from school every day. And the only way that you're gonna be able to do that is if you have a car. And so you come to me and I've got cars because I'm a car salesman. Now, do I want a lot full of cars? No. Can, can I go out and spend cars? No. Can I get my kids new braces with cars? <laughs> no. No, what do I need? Money. I need money, right. So I need money, and you need a car. So what do we do? Trade. We trade. Exactly, we trade. You give me some money, and I give you a car. And so, and, and guess what happens? We are both wealthier because of this exchange. We're both wealthier. Look, I didn't like rip you off or steal your money from you. Uh, you came out ahead because you valued the car more than the money. And I came out ahead because I valued the money more than the car. And so they are equivalent in worth and principle. But to you, what I had was worth more. And to me, what you had was worth more. And we traded. And so we both came out ahead. Okay? And that's the beauty of following God's law, uh, which says that we have private property. Uh, so the socialists are already wrong with that. And second, you're not allowed to steal my private property. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And according to another one of the Ten Commandments, you're not even allowed to think about stealing my property. You shall not covet. So you can't take my stuff, and I can't take your stuff. And so the only way that I can get the stuff that you have, uh, that I need, is to trade you for it, okay? Uh, Trade you for value, and every time that we trade, the amount of wealth in the world goes up, okay? So that means oppression, and slavery, and injustice, does that build wealth or destroy wealth? It destroys wealth. Freedom and human dignity and respect for life increases wealth everywhere, And the more we trust one another, and the more we respect one another's property and respect the dignity of one another's lives and status as an image bearer of God, the more you can do business that is mutually beneficial and everybody prospers together. And the connection between free enterprise, which is that mutual voluntary exchanging of stuff, and biblical Christianity uh, hasn't gone unnoticed, even by those outside of the faith even by those outside of the faith. They see the value of biblical economics. Uh, One interesting example of this is the famous thesis by sociologist Max Weber in his book. It's called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And it's really cool. This thesis that, that Weber came up with was that the development of modern capitalism, industrialization, and science and all of those things are a product of Protestantism. Now, Weber's not a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. But he could see that uh, the development of the industrialization and wealth building and capitalism and science, all, that, all of those things were brought about through Christianity, through Protestantism. And in some ways, he is certainly right, although you could find capitalism in the Middle Ages if you know where to look. Uh, He certainly has the right idea about the Protestant work ethic, but the problem is that he completely misreads where it comes from. So Weber says that the Protestant work ethic comes from the biblical idea of predestination. And if you're trying to figure out, if you are one of the predestined, you are going to start looking for signs for it. And success in this world is a sign of God's blessing and therefore a sign of God's favor. And therefore you wanna you wanna work hard as a way of alleviating salvation anxiety, worrying about if you're saved or not. Now, that's kind of a good idea by a non Christian, right? But it's it's very wrong, right? First of all, do y'all know what the Protestant work ethic is? I talked about this last year in Humanities with you guys. The work ethic of Protestants, huh? Yes. Can we guess? Yeah, guess. Guess uh, away. Dominion,
1: like just having dominion over the
0: world. And, and how is that done?
1: Through making a business and like getting, selling things to other people and
0: like mm-hmm.
1: taking dominion over your
0: field. Or working hard. Yeah, working, yeah, working hard. hard. Definitely, definitely. And so uh, so Weber thought that people work, Protestants, Christians worked hard because in in order to, Somehow get more blessings from God and prove to themselves that they're really Christians because they believe that God has already picked out who the Christians are going to be from before foundation of the world. That's true. Uh, but they figured the more blessings that God gives me, the more of a, a certainty that I could have that I'm saved. And the way to gain more of those blessings is to work harder and harder and harder. Now, that's a cool idea, but it's, it's wrong. It's not correct. And the reason that we know this is because we do know from sources like uh, William Perkins' golden chain, which is uh, basically attempting to do exactly what Weber was talking about. Y'all know what I mean by the... Y'all ever heard of the golden chain of salvation? Like it's based off of Romans 8.28. If somebody wants to turn to Romans 8.28, we can talk about it for a second. Romans 8.28. William Perkins called that the golden chain of salvation. When you have it, you can read it. Or it might be eight twenty-seven.
1: For for
0: okay, so that, let's go to. Let, let me look it up real quick. Because that's that's in the right neighborhood, but I I got the scripture wrong. It's in my head. Uh, let me see. Let me find it. Ah, number uh, twenty-nine. 29
1: For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers.
0: Keep going? Uh, Sorry, 30 for Those
1: whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified.
0: Okay, good. So there's our chain. This is how we can know that we're saved, right? If we're in this what Perkins called the golden chain of salvation. So what's the first link in the chain? justification we talked about this a few weeks back justification if you're justified then or actually let me go back one if you're called from before the foundation of the world predestined you will be called and who who is called is justified that's the second link of the chain and those whom he justified here's another link in the chain he also glorified so this is the, the real way that you can know whether you're a Christian. Are you on this chain? Are you becoming more sanctified? Are you, are you um, is the fruits of your life, um, are they aligned with this golden chain? Uh, are you going to be, are you saved based on the fruits in your life? And so um, <clears throat> people really were trying to understand where they are in the process of salvation. And, or are they among the elect? Things like that. And, and when you look at this golden chain that Perkins set up, all of the signs of, the, of election, none of them, do y'all see any of them having to do with economic success? Y'all see that? No. So there was a degree of salvation anxiety, you know, basically people trying to figure out whether they were in the predestination system. But that, that's not tied to economics, it's not tied to economics. Instead, so that's Weber's Weber's thesis is, is wrong. Instead, the reason why Protestantism, Christianity, succeeds in the way that it does economically and so much wealth is created is because they had a vision for what Reformed Christians call these days the cultural mandate. And that's what Jude was alluding to earlier, the dominion mandate. That all professions, as long as they aren't criminal or immoral are God-given professions. And they are always serving God because all of them can be done out of a love for our neighbor. That's where that comes from. That's where the Protestant work ethic comes from. Uh, Living Coram Deo, before the face of God. And and as a result of that work ethic, working hard in your profession, uh, that is an obligation before God. And it's what God expects of you. And it's what God calls you to do in your life. And that degree of hard work, combined with the idea that you want to, of course, avoid inconspicuous consumption, wasting your resources, and you want to live a responsible life before God, uh, will, by God's blessings, make someone wealthy. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Think about it. If you work hard and you don't spend all your money, what usually happens? You get rich. That's what usually happens, and, and, and that's what happened in northern Europe, which was heavily influenced by Christianity, and, and it's this idea of the dominion mandate that Weber missed that explains the phenomenon he was looking at. Now, it may be tempting to think that the connection between material prosperity in this life and covenantal faithfulness is like the prosperity gospel. You know what the prosperity gospel is? Yeah, but it's not like that at all, though. Certainly there was among reformers, the Puritans, and others, the notion that material blessings tend to be a reflection of God's favor. And, of course, they would like to uh, save, not waste all their money on things that aren't useful. And, And that idea, like any other idea, could be twisted and perverted. And that's what the prosperity gospel is. And, of course, we know that there are poor people that are godly people, right? And there are, of course, rich people who are not godly people. But in much of Christianity today, I think we've gone in the opposite direction to this idea, and there's been a strong hostility to wealth and to Christians who are wealthy. Uh, That's not true in the Bible, though. Abraham was very wealthy, and he was a godly man, right? Other people in the Bible were also very wealthy. There was uh, Joseph of Arimathea who buried Jesus. He was very wealthy, Um, and wealth in the Bible is according to Uh, the Old Testament covenant, particularly in Deuteronomy. And what is wealth usually? It's a reward for long-term obedience to God, right? But we know that that doesn't mean that everyone in the world who is wealthy is also godly, right? There are a lot of ungodly, wealthy people out there, and the Psalms makes that clear. The Bible knows this. God knows this. And of course, there are also God, uh, you know, ungodly poor people too. But long-term wealth, generally speaking, not just not just material blessing or money. Long-term blessing is a reward for long-term faithfulness to God, particularly uh, intergenerationality, like between the generations. I'm talking about long-term wealth, not twenty or thirty years. I'm talking about two or three hundred years. Usually, uh, all the time, the wealth of the uh, the wicked is stored up for the righteous. And one of the things that we should be reminded of is that when the prosperity gospel preachers get to talking, they actually have a lot of Bible verses to help make their case. Even though they're wrong, they're the ones with the Bible verses that help make their case. Uh, There are so many verses in Scripture that talk about being blessed in your baskets and being blessed in your stores, uh, there are a lot of verses, but their problem is is that they want to reduce this to very simplistic, reductionistic terms. They want God to operate like a vending machine, where blessings and only blessings come out when you turn the when you put the quarter in and turn the knob, the blessings come out. And the Bible, of course, does promise many blessings, and there is a lot of prosperity that will come from the preaching of the gospel. That's true. I mean, think about this: a man is converted who. Uh, has up to this point, has been wasting his life. Okay, Think about this person. And he has been wonderfully and completely converted. Uh, and one of the first things that happens is that the, co- the cocaine bill suddenly goes way down. Right? Cocaine's expensive. It will, it will totally like, take all the wealth from you. But now that he's converted, all of a sudden the cocaine bill starts going way down. And the alcohol bill goes way down. And all of a sudden, he can keep and hold a job. Uh, What does that do to the family budget? It goes up, right? So prosperity starts to happen. And of course, new temptations come with that. And and the health and wealth gospel is certainly heresy. I'm not saying it's not heresy. But so is the sick and poor gospel. That's also heresy.
1: You must be sick and poor and you will like it.
0: The sick and poor, the more sick and poor you are, the more godly you are. That's also heresy. Heresy, that's equally as uh, heretic as the health and wealth gospel. Isn't that what the that? Isn't Who? Isn't that what the that? Yeah, yeah, asceticism. The more I beat myself up, the more I uh, fast and don't eat food for days and days at a time, the more godly I'll be. That's just as heretical as health and wealth gospel. Yes, sir. Yeah. So the notion that you, that you just obey and you'll automatically become wealthy and you can demand things from God, that's false. That is utterly false. That's the health and wealth gospel. That's a false gospel. But the sick and poor gospel is also a false gospel. And, of course, that's the idea that if I'm poor in health and I don't have very much money, then that's evidence that I'm really following the Lord. And all of those people who live in those nice houses and live in River Ranch and drive all those nice cars, they must really be ungodly. That's false. That's false. Uh, well, we're really saying then that God's promises to Israel and to us as the grafted ones in Israel, that if we followed him, He's going to give us a land flowing with milk and honey and all sorts of material wealth. We're saying that those promises are false when we go to that sick and poor gospel. We're basically saying that God really didn't mean what he said when he said it. And we're calling into question the character of God and his reliability in keeping his promises. And we can't do that. And so Jesus echoes what was said in the Old Testament, that anyone who follows him in this life will have land and houses and friends and all sorts of blessings. We always tend to ignore that part of the passage, right? Jesus said that anyone who follows him in this life will have land and houses and friends and all kinds of blessings. But what else does Jesus say? We'll also have persecutions and tribulations we're going to have all of it. Some will have prosperity. Maybe, maybe we'll have prosperity and persecution in the same lifetime. We'll have the whole thing, like Job? huh? Like Job, exactly, exactly. Jesus perfectly balances these two, these two ends of the spectrum out: the health and wealth, and the sick and poor. Okay, but but that's simply the idea that wealth is somehow inherently an indication that you have a lack of godliness in your life. That is false, false gospel. Now it's interesting that almost all of the people who who say uh, who that do believe in the promise of the Old Testament, where it says that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, there'll be great material provision throughout all the earth as a result of the Messiah. That's true. The only difference is they say that this can't happen until Jesus Christ physically returns to Earth to establish a physical millennium based on Revelation twenty on the Earth. So. It's not like the sick and poor people are like totally objected to prosperity. They just disagree on the timing of that prosperity. When do they believe that things that the church will be prosperous and the people of God be prosperous? After Jesus comes back. But that's not what the Bible says. So they're not opposed to this idea. They just have it they're just opposed to this idea of being in the church aged. Now, where the prosperity gospel people fail is not in pointing to the passages that teach this. You know, Benny Hinn doesn't fail in pointing to these passages. Joel Osteen doesn't fail by pointing to these passages, but it, 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 then that they but they want it to happen in an ironclad way, and, and the best way that I know of to answer both the doom and gloom gospel people and the prosperity gospel people is by pointing them to a passage in Hebrews eleven. Hebrews eleven. You don't have to turn there. You can just make notes that this is there. Uh, Anybody know what Hebrews eleven is, is known for? Like, what is Hebrews eleven all about? It's the Hall of Faith. You know what the Hall of Faith is? What's the Hall of Faith?
1: It's a bunch of different people who uh, were like really good Christians in the Bible, mm-hmm. and all and he like just saying that they are all they were all faithful.
0: Right, right, exactly. So if we look at Hebrews 11, I think we're going to find a good balance of between health and wealth and sick and poor. And in Hebrews 11, like Jude said, we see a bunch of heroes of the faith. And it's in the second section, starting in verse 27, uh, where we can really see this balance. Um, it says, it has all this good stuff. It says, By faith, women received their dead, raised to life again. By faith, men routed armies. And by faith, men conquered kingdoms. That sounds like prosperity to me, right? That's wealth. And then it goes on. By faith, they were sawn in two. (laughs) By faith, they hid in caves, and the world was not worthy of them. So you have both sides here. You have the health and wealth folks of the faith, and then you have, obviously, the sick and poor. Being sawn in two is not exactly a sign of wealth and prosperity, right? Hiding in caves is not a sign of wealth and prosperity. And so we have some in this group of saints who conquered kingdoms in worldly terms. They literally conquered kingdoms. They routed armies. They were prosperous. They were wealthy. There it is, prosperity gospel. And there were other saints who were martyrs, and they died for their faith. And Christianity has room for both of those. Christianity has room for both of those. And so, as the saying goes, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, and I know that as the gospel is preached, there will be martyrs. You know, it's funny. Right now, we have around the world way more Christians dying for their faith than even in the first few centuries of the church. Right now. Because there are more Christians. Do what? Because there, are more Christians. there are more Christians and more of them are dying. More of them are being martyred. And, and I have no doubt that these Chinese Christians or Christians in Indonesia And Christians in Sudan. uh, I have no doubt that that is going to overthrow those kingdoms, those secular kingdoms. God is going to use that to do it. We've seen it play out many times in church history. No doubt that communist China's days are numbered. But I also know that when the Christians overthrow the godless seed of the communists, they will be tempted to do what? To be proud and to get fat and haughty about it, right? Uh, just like America has. We did the same thing. We conquered kingdoms. We routed armies. But now, you know, we're fat and proud and we're lazy. And so then what, what does God normally do to a, a fat and lazy and proud culture? He judges them. Exactly. He judges them. So God raises somebody else up to discipline them. So it's not all rainbows and sunshine. I know that. It, it's not that kind of prosperity gospel. But the gospel does bring about prosperity; it does. So don't don't ignore that part of the passages. It also brings about hardship too. All right, let's talk about equality for a moment. Equality? Uh, question: Is equality a Christian virtue? Yes or no? Uh, yes. Is equality a Christian virtue? Okay. Yes. Huh? I'm just just. With that basic information, I'll let you know in just a second. But just generally speaking, is equality a Christian virtue? Yes. Okay. I think it's yes and no. And I think you asked the right question. What kind of equality are we talking about? I think it's yes in some sense, no in other sense. What would be, what would be an example of yes? Well, equality of opportunity, right? A uh, quality of justice. A quality of uh, the demonstration of respect and love no matter the person, uh, the exercise of mercy, yes. Uh, but what about the equality of outcome? No, no, it's not possible. Not all of us can have the same equality of outcome. We're all different. Uh, some of us are, uh, will achieve more. Sorry if you have to hear that. Some of you in this class will achieve more than others of you in this class. That's just how it is. Some are more proud than others in this class. (laughs) Double raising of the hand. There you go. So, yeah, but the point is, some of us are more driven than others. Some of us are more ambitious than others. But at the same time, some of us are content with less than others would be. Some of us have capacities that will naturally garner wealth and opportunities to us. And some of us don't have those capacities. That's okay. And the Bible recognizes that. The Bible recognizes that there are differences in the wider culture, and the Bible does not attempt to level any of the playing field for individuals. Uh, What it attempts to do is to make sure that there aren't aren't differing weights and measures, that justice is applied righteously, and that we don't regard the rich over the poor or the poor over the rich. What about income inequality? You all know what income inequality is? If take a guess
1: you give them the same amount of money like,
0: that's well that's well. that's income equality. what about uh, income inequality
1: communism <laughs> you don't do
0: that <laughs> you don't do that what don't you do like, say it again say
1: if there's one person that you like you pay them like more than some other person that you just don't like as
0: yeah. right for the same job right. right for the same job and let's say they had the same abilities yeah okay uh, so so what about income inequality what uh, Did you have a question? Yeah, I
1: was going to give an example. Okay, go ahead. Like if somebody's working harder than the other person, but the other person is like, but I want equal pay.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: You'll get an equal pay if you work as hard.
0: Right, and exactly. Very good. Yeah, income inequality. Um, what about the fact that, you know, for us to, uh, uh, a certain person can, uh, let's say we're in construction and we make $20 an hour. That same person in Honduras is working construction, and they make 15 cents an hour. Uh, what do we do about that? Does the Bible say that they should make the same amount of money? It depends. It depends. So, so let's, let's start by answering this question by asking, what do the secular economists know about income inequality. Why is there income inequality? Why, just generally, here's a real blanket way to say income inequality. Why do some people get paid more than others? Because why? Now, I don't want to answer the question right now. Why, that's basically what income inequality is. Uh, you know, uh, Bill, Bill Gates and uh, that guy working construction should make the same amount of money and get the same amount of wealth. That's equal. That's fair. But it's not like that, is it? Why is it not like that? What? How do modern? I'm gonna answer the question about how? How do modern economists uh, figure this out? How can they explain income inequality? Well, they can't explain it. They've tried. They cannot explain why this is. And uh, the first-rate studies of income inequality. Uh, I've done a little bit of research, so you don't have to. I'm letting you know. this is by this late 19th century man named Vilfredo Pareto. He was an economist. Vilfredo Pareto. He's Italian. He's a funny name. And he began studying income distribution in Italy. And then he went on uh, beyond Italy, and he found this really cool thing out. He found out that 20% of the population in Italy owned 80% of the land. 20% of the population owned 80% of the land. And then he began to research other countries of Western Europe, and he found that approximately 20% of the people had 80% of the income. So that's known today in economist circles as the Pareto 2080 law. And it doesn't just apply to income. It applies across the board to just about everything. 20% Twenty uh, percent of the pol- of the officers in a police department make eighty percent of the arrests. Twenty uh, percent of the calls to a customer service line about a problem will cause eighty percent of the losses of the customer service department. 20 the- percent of the people on the football team will catch eighty percent of the balls. There you go. That probably applies there too. Yeah. So the twenty eighty rule, the Pareto twenty eighty rule, is one of the most remarkable social phenomena in mankind's history, and nobody knows why it exists. Modern economists cannot explain why this is, why this is such a thing. And so here's my thing. Socialists then shouldn't tell us why they have a political system of centralized power to solve the inequality problem. They can't tell us anything if they can't even figure out why this 2080 distribution exists. How could, why would we hand the power, why would we hand the hammer, so to speak, to the state and let the state control income uh, until we can't, why would we let them have the power of the hammer when they don't even know what nail to hit? They don't even know what to do. They don't, they shouldn't have the power because, first of all, they're not authorized to have that power, but they don't even know how to solve this the most basic fundamental issue in income inequality, which is this Pareto 2080 rule.
1: It's like giving a baby
0: a do what control. It's like giving a baby a TV remote. Yeah, like, yeah, you you can't you can't trust them to be able to uh, operate it correctly and, and rightly. And so so what does that tell us about income inequality? It's unavoidable. We can't avoid it. Uh, why can't we avoid it? This is really basic stuff. Because people, different people want to do different things in their lives, right? Uh, Elon Musk wants to shoot rockets into space, right? Others want to run a hedge fund. Uh, others want to paint watercolors. And because of them wanting to do different things, they're going to get different economic results, right? The question isn't whether the economic results are identical, but the question is, did they have the freedom to use their gifts their way? Right, And the ultimate wealth that those three very different people got from their vocations can be best measured in their general happiness and joy from what they did well. So don't try to force some equality of result. That's stupid. That's moronic. That's about as moronic as the idea of a zero-sum game. Y'all know what a zero-sum game is? A
1: game with no purpose. Huh? A game with no, like, um, no
0: No, basically that means that uh, any wealth that you receive, that you gain, had to have been taken from someone else. So any, let's say you have a pie right here. If you cut a slice of the pie out and you take it for yourself, a zero-sum game says that, well, by you taking that slice for yourself, everybody else has less. Now, that makes sense when you're looking at a pie, right? But that doesn't make any sense when you're looking at the economy, because econ- economics is, and wealth and prosperity is not a zero-sum game. Yeah. Who made five loaves and three fishes in, to feed to 5,000? God did. Yeah. If anything could have been a zero-sum game, it would have been that, right? Yeah. But God creates wealth. God, using man, creates wealth and dominion. And so there's plenty for everybody because God is the sovereign ruler over the earth. There aren't like a finite level of resources out there. That if one person takes all of them, if, if, if one person takes 99% of the resources, everybody else has to share the 1%. That's not how it works. That's not how God's economy works. It works, it compounds. The more wealth and the more we honor God with our wealth, guess what? The more wealth we'll receive. And it almost seems like it comes, it comes from nothing. It comes out of nowhere, Right? Because in one sense, it does come out and comes from nowhere, right? It comes from the Lord's hand. He gives wealth to those who honor him. And so the, even the presuppositions of socialists is wrong. They, they're trying to say that they're trying to work within the categories of a zero-sum game, but that's not even how the world works. Why would we give them the keys to, to run everything if they don't even know how to even start to uh, begin to understand how wealth works? So... <clears throat> Let's see. Um, talking about all these different people, uh, you know, let me go back here. Um, let's say someone is a painter and they paint watercolors and, and they make a living doing that. Are they going to make as much as the guy who shoots rockets into space?
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> no, they're not. They, they are not currently. No <laughs> painter makes as much as Elon Musk. Sorry. Uh, but at the same time, would, would a painter, who, someone whose God has gifted to paint, and that's their, that's their vocation, you think they'd be happy shooting rockets into space? Let's say they knew nothing about it. Okay, shoot rockets into space. You'll get paid billions of dollars a year to shoot rockets into space. But you have to do it right. Otherwise, you're not going to get paid. You think that person would be very happy shooting rockets into space? Why? Because God didn't give that to them. God didn't give that gift to them. Right? He's not, that person's probably not going to enjoy that very much. And my point is, is that everyone is made differently. God has made everyone differently, and they will get different outcomes. But one thing that they have to have equally is the dignity of life, the dignity of liberty, and the opportunity to pursue happiness as God has made them to do with the gifts he has given them. That creates extraordinary wealth. And wealth has to be understood ultimately as not the presence of stuff. Okay. All of us said that wealth is material possessions, money, these sorts of things. Uh, we cannot understand wealth that way. All right? It's not the presence of stuff. That's not the definition of wealth. Wealth is, it should be defined as the absence of want. The absence of want. All of us want different things, right? Mm-hmm. It would take different, differing amounts of stuff to make Nicholas happy versus Jude happy. That's true even now. They might, it might be close right now, but probably one would be more content with less than the other. That's usually how it is. That's not a sign that someone is more godly than someone else. That's not a sign of any of those things. That's just a sign that God has made them different with different gifts and different needs, right? I, as a pastor who doesn't really, don't really make a lot of money, I would not be happy shooting rockets into space, even though I would be given checks with lots of zeros on them. I wouldn't ultimately be happy doing that. Why? Because that's not my calling, that's not my gifting. I would probably blow people up if I tried to shoot rockets into space because I don't know anything about it. I'm not a mathematician, I'm not gifted in mathematics versus Elon Musk and those like him, they are gifted in mathematics and, and they can do those things, right? But I wouldn't be happy doing that. Besides, if everybody shot rockets into space, who would be pastoring these people? No one. Then they'd probably end up shooting rockets at each other. So we don't want that. So not everybody wants the same things. And some people can live on less and be happier, and some people need more to be happy. Some people need all kinds of different things, but the issue of wealth is not one of this one or that one has more stuff. That's not what it's about. It's how readily may a particular person pursue and glorify God with their own gifts. That's what wealth is. right? Take uh, John D. Rockefeller, for instance. Any of you all know anything about him?
1: He's, the steel
0: guy. he's done a lot of different things. Yeah, he was at one point known as the richest man in the world. But he was also painted by a lot of people as a greedy capitalist pig. And he's not the greedy capitalist pig that people make him out to be. So, one thing that John D. Rockefeller invented was standardized, uh, safe, cheap indoor lighting. Right? He didn't get the light bulb, but he invented the lighting system that goes into people's houses. Now, how much value is there in that? A lot, a lot. Quite a bit, right? There's a reason he became the richest man in the world. right? Now, you know, children can come home from school and do their homework at night. Aren't you grateful for that? You can do your homework at night and not have to go straight to bed after your chores. People can go to the library after work hours. Uh, people can go see an opera after work. Uh, People who need a job for the second and third shift can actually work a second and third shift because they can actually see inside the building, because it's not dark inside the building, right? (laughs) It opened up a whole new world for people. It is a creative act, so to speak. It's somewhat like God's first creative act. Let there be light, right? And for that, this huge amount of value was unleashed in a world that we all share in down to this very day. We have John D. Rockefeller to thank for that. And he, even being the richest man in the world, takes a very small cut out of that in va- for his compensation, right? So in my mind, he deserves to be the richest man in the world. He gave something of great value to the world. Indoor lighting's a big deal, right? Or what about uh, Steve Jobs inventing the iPhone? That's a big deal, right? And he deserved to be rich off of that. Uh, You know, I get, because I get more value every day from my iPhone than I can even calculate, right? Not not least in the 43 Bible translations that I have right here on my phone. So in all of these different ways, when you realize that wealth is more than money and it's more than stuff, it transforms your thinking. And you realize that what we are really talking about is the literal pushing back of the curse. That's what we're doing. That's what these men and, and women do when they invent and when they innovate and all of these things. Restoring conditions in Eden and advancing them to the conditions that we see in the New Jerusalem. That's what we're doing. We're pushing back the curse. These sorts of inventions, the iPhone, indoor lighting, that's pushing back the curse. That's a big deal. I mean, we're talking about the New Jerusalem in the sermon series we're in, right? And, And the New Jerusalem, it's a beautiful, huge city that will have no lack of anything. And no one is going to be without the intimacy of a relationship with God. No one will be without basic sustenance in the New Jerusalem. Uh, No one will be homeless. No one will be sick. There will be no death. There will be no sin. That's what we're shooting for. Not in a a man-centered, Tower of Babel sort of way, right? Think about it. Every time we're better able to make a widow live indoors and eat plenty... And every time we figure out how to eradicate a disease by figuring out uh, a cure, every one of those things makes the world better, right? And we're doing our part as Christians to use the gifts God has given us to do that. That's our job. That's what we are called to do, to push back the curse. And so we have to be sure to learn and try to figure out and pray and ask God, what am I called to do in my life? And how could, I bring, uh, how could I create wealth for God's kingdom? It's not how much stuff can I accumulate for myself or how much stuff can I give to everybody else. It's really about value and what can I do for God's kingdom? What can I do for me to be without want? That's the definition of wealth. And how can I serve others? And if we understand that, if we even just begin to understand these basic principles of biblical economics... Um, we're going to see a a world that's entirely changed and entirely christianized the economy is definitely one way to do it we're going to see really truly everybody without want right and and we don't need the centralized government to handle that for us it all can be done in a decentralized way like i've been talking about all semester long all right any questions No.
1: (laughs) Does that include with things that are like brain things? If you know what I mean, (laughs) that's not the way to say it. Like brain things, like wealth, like um, like how he invented like light. Um, it could also be with things like like teaching people, like intellectual property. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, sure, definitely. Anyone who like. The value that your pastors give you, for instance, we pretty much only deal in the realm of intellectual and spiritual things in that sense, biblical things. You know, I'm not creating a product to give to you guys, but I am giving y'all something, right? I'm imparting wisdom. I'm imparting knowledge. And do you think you'll be able to all the knowledge and wisdom that your pastors have given you throughout the years? You think that has some value to you? You think you'll be able to use that one day in value, like to to uh, impact God's kingdom in the world? Definitely. So I think that's true with other intellectual property as well. Um, You know, ideas have consequences. You know, George Orwell, you know, for not being a Christian or anything, he did impart some very interesting ideas. Right? Mm -hmm. He wrote about a world that uh, abandoned biblical economics. And that abandoned uh, the, the Christian worldview, whether he knew it or not. And we, using our imaginations, reading his book, are able to envision a world where, in a sense, God is just you know, shoved under the rug. Right? Does that have value to us? Yes. We don't want to live in a world like that. So let's be sure and you know, see what the Bible has to say about how to live in God's world and do the opposite of that. That has value, right? That, in essence, will enable you to, let's say you do create products and physical things. Like, you're doing it for the glory of God, right? And and you're making, you're serving your neighbor, and you're creating wealth for others, right? Like, Steve Jobs making an iPhone. I know he wasn't a Christian, but he made this iPhone. How did he make this iPhone? With stuff in his head. You know, he had intellectual property. He had intellectual, he had uh, knowledge and understanding of how... Technology works and how phones work, and, and all of these things. He had imagination. And that creates so much value for each and every one of us. How many of y'all have an iPhone or have a phone of some kind? How many of y'all have a Mac or some kind of Apple product? Right? Mostly everybody in here has that. Do you benefit from that? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Yeah, you're taking notes in class because of it. So, yeah, intellectual property definitely is, is wealth for sure.